mental illness does not discriminate. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter what your favorite ice cream is. It could happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to run in your family. There's always life circumstances that occur that could just change a person's life forever. Welcome to The Carlina Show. I'm your host, Carlina Angwin. My guest today is Dr. Tamika Webb, Correctional Counselor in the state of Tennessee. Dr. Webb has provided mental health services to adult inmates housed in a maximum security facility. She conducted a research study which examined mindfulness interventions among adult male inmates and currently works as a correctional counselor where she provides individual counseling and intensive outpatient programs for individuals who have been previously incarcerated. The Carlina Show podcast is available on YouTube and anywhere you listen to podcasts. You may find us on Instagram and Facebook and follow along. Now I bring you Dr. Tamiko Webb. I'm originally from Michigan, Pontiac, Michigan. I relocated here in pursuit of an education. Okay. So when did you realize that you wanted to work in mental health? I've actually been in the field of mental health for over 25 years. So it actually started at a pretty young age. Mm -hmm. Um, Growing up in the neighborhood and being with people who actually needed someone to walk them through life experiences. Um, I think that that's when I felt this thing whereby, okay, counseling, being with people who are vulnerable is my thing, something that just comes natural. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like people were drawn to you, like they wanted to tell you, um, you know, their problems or they, um, they felt like, like you helped them feel better. Yes, definitely. Um, my mom, she always called me, there's a name of a lady who, um, could be kind of referred to like a mother Teresa, um, in Michigan, her name was mother Waddles. And she used to, that was my little nickname, um, growing up because, I was that person, that go-to person that people felt really comfortable in talking with. And I just never realized that it was a gift until my adulthood. And so, yeah. Okay. Okay. And you said you moved to Nashville to pursue an education. Was that for your doctorate or was that No. So what happened was I attended a church back in Michigan. And at that time, there was a deacon that was preaching to the young folks, or I should say ministering to the young folks in the church. And he really encouraged us to go to school and really do something. And so the thought 
or the conversation um, around Tennessee State University came up and he recommended that that was a really good school to go to. And at that time, I think it was his wife that graduated from Tennessee State University. And so right after I graduated from high school, I relocated to Tennessee. Do you have and family here or did you move here not knowing anybody? So I, I originally I moved here not knowing anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, maybe 10 years after I moved, my mother, she moved here. She retired from the school system and moved here to Nashville. Okay. So yeah, a newbie, I didn't know anybody. <laughs> Everything was new. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your um, your doctorate, your 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 thesis. Just to give me kind of an, an overview before we jump into jump into sure. it. <laughs> sure. So my dissertation um, it examined depression, suicide, ideation cognitive distortions, and self-esteem among adult male inmates who are incarcerated in a maximum security facility. And so what I did was I looked at an intervention, or I should say that I applied an intervention to see if those variables would change as a direct impact because of the intervention that I used, which was mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So I looked to see if mindfulness had an influence in changing depression, suicide ideation, cognitive distortion, self-esteem. Could you break those down a little bit, what each of those mean? Yeah, so with depression, uh, it's it's a mental health diagnosis. Um, Statistically, there are a lot of people that are diagnosed with depression. And so what depression looks like is persistent sadness, um, a lack of desire to engage with other people. Um, it's just like a heaviness of a sadness. So like when we look at emotions, sadness is a healthy emotion. But when that person is not able to express their emotions in a healthy way, then it could manifest into depression. So a lot of times you see people that just don't want to be around other people or they may not be taking very good care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And then I also looked at suicide because suicide, um, statistically, there are more people that commit suicide than there are homicides in the United States. I looked at cognitive distortions and cognitive distortions are like these negative thoughts that we kind of tell ourselves that, well, I can't do this or nobody loves me. It's just almost like a feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. Mm-hmm. And you're just preoccupied with these negative, I call it stinking thinking. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, and self-esteem, of course, you know, sometimes people could have low self-esteem and not have a lot of confidence within themselves. And so I wanted to look at those variables as it relates to an inmate population. And then when we think about mindfulness mm-hmm. and mindfulness is it's a great intervention, which encourages people to be in the here and now. And so it's, you're bringing your attention to the present moment, as opposed to thinking about the past, thinking about what happened 
last week, last year, or what's going to be happening the next few days or the next few months. It gives that person the opportunity to just focus on now because mm-hmm. you're only in control over the present moment. You're not in control over the past or the present. Mm-hmm. Now, do you practice mindfulness or did you, bef- did you practice mindfulness before this study? So that's interesting that you say that. A lot of people actually practice mindfulness and they just don't know that they're really putting, you don't put a name to it. So you could, um, people that run and jog or people that meditate, like that's a form of being mindful. Mm -hmm. And so before I knew the name or before it was given this name, I can say that, yes, I've actually been practicing it for years, but, Mm -hmm. um, It was just within, I would say, the past 10 years that I've really um, become involved with that type of intervention. And so, yes, I do. I practice mindfulness every day. Mm -hmm. And how? give me an example of the type of mindfulness that you practice. Sure. So I really love to do what we call guided imagery. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you could listen to a recording that... It tells you to, well, close your eyes and take a deep breath. Um, imagine the sun shining or it just brings attention to your senses, like whatever you smell, whatever you hear, whatever you feel, whatever you see. And so that's one example of a mindfulness intervention that I like to do. Another mindfulness um technique is mindful eating. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I'm eating, I want to just enjoy the food. Mm -hmm. So tasting the food, um, feeling um, the texture of what you're eating, because a lot of times people are doing a hundred different things while they're eating. Like Mm -hmm. they may be watching TV or listening to the music or talking to a friend or driving or just doing some other activities and they don't have any um, memory of what the food tastes like. They just probably know that, okay, I'm full. But for me, I intentionally, I'm mindful when it comes to eating. Mm -hmm. Um, When I'm taking a shower, I pay attention to the water on my body. I just, I'm just an, an intentional person that just pays attention to everything that is going on around me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, so why did you decide to study men um, instead of women or, or both genders? Yes. So that's a great question. And so statistically, and I'm so sorry to keep saying statistically, that's but okay. <laughs> um, so when it comes to research, a lot of times females are the ones who um, express a willingness to participate in different studies. And so when I was looking at the research, I noticed that there were a lot of studies that focused on female inmates as opposed to male inmates. And so I had to look at that a little bit further in that, well, it makes sense that culturally, a lot of men have been taught that it's not okay to cry. It's not okay to be emotional. It's just, you basically have to hold in what you're feeling. And so it's like you're suffering this pain in silence. And so it was really important for me to be able to connect with a male inmate population. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And and how did you how did you establish that relationship with both with the the prison system and with the inmates? How did you get um, the system and the inmates to trust you? Yes. Yeah, so when we look at research studies um, in particular, like children, when you get um, what's the word that I'm looking for in order to get permission for children to participate in your study, well, you have to seek the permission and the consent from their parents. Mm -hmm. And so inmates, it's even more of of a safeguard to um, make sure that when you're working with them that they don't feel like they have to do this because they're made to do this. Well, they feel like they're being punished. And so, yes, I have to do this certain thing. And so I had to really lay out my consent form and how that looked like to let the participants know that it was totally voluntary mm-hmm. and that their participation would be greatly appreciated. So mm-hmm. um I actually completed my doctoral internship with the Davidson County Sheriff's Office. And so that was where I was able to connect with staff, connect with the inmates, and just build that rapport. Mm -hmm. And I received permission to work with that population because I had already um, worked in that capacity where I was providing mental health services to them. Okay. So then when you, um, when you asked one of the inmates if they would be interested in participating in the study, walk me through what you said to them. Okay. And so there were different pods and they call them pods Mm -hmm. that the inmates were housed in. And so I had to visit each pod and give like a mini um, presentation of, well, who I am, um, a little bit of what the study is about and what they could expect. And so during that time um, for recruitment, I had to have consent forms. And because my study, I did a pre and post test, which meant that the participants filled out one particular questionnaire before the intervention for mindfulness. And then they also filled out that same questionnaire after the intervention mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So when I went to the different pods, I had all of those documents with me Mm -hmm. and um, I just introduced myself and many of them were really happy that there was someone that was willing to come into that prison system and actually, you know, participate or engage them in something that they hadn't been introduced to. So they were really welcoming me. Mm-hmm. It was They were open to that idea. What type of questions did they have in the early stages about your study? Um, so some of the questions within the questionnaires. No, that or- maybe they just asked you, like, you know, maybe did they ask you what the study was for or do they have any questions for you? Yeah. yeah so some of the questions w- w- was um, geared toward, well, how long is the study? 
Um, how long will they meet with me? And also just give them a brief explanation of what mindfulness looked like. Mm-hmm. I had to just also let them know that I was not part of the Davidson County Sheriff's Office and that I was, you know, a student that just really wanted them to participate in my study. Mm-hmm. And so those were type of the type of questions that they had, and they really were eager to know when they were going to get started. And how soon after did they get started? I would say approximately two weeks. Okay, so, so pretty soon. I, yeah, pretty soon. Um, my goal was to to recruit at least 75 participants, mm-hmm. and I was actually able to recruit a total of about 100 and I don't know the exact number, Mm -hmm. but I ended up with only 60 participants um, participating in my study. So initially there were more people that showed an interest, but as time went on, Mm -hmm. uh, either some of them were placed in what we call segregation, which means that they may have engaged in a physically aggressive behavior. And so they had to be removed from like the general population because they posed a threat to others. Mm -hmm. And so that's why some of them had to be placed in like maybe a segregation. So even though I may have obtained permission Mm -hmm. initially in their consent to participate. Maybe there were some other instances that had occurred in between me providing them with the mindfulness intervention. And then there were some instances where maybe um, some of the participants were transferred to other housing uh, facilities. So like I was they were in a maximum security, so some of them may have been transferred to a medium security, mm-hmm. and then some were probably just released um, altogether. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the numbers kind of dwindled down as time progressed. Okay, so you were in a maximum security prison. Yes. So, what is the difference between medium security and maximum security as far as the types of crimes? Yeah, so it's the severity of the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it could be um, anywhere from a person committing murder, homicide, um, aggravated assault. Mm-hmm. And then it could just be um, the time in which that person has to serve. And so there are people that are in jail because of like misdemeanors, maybe um but is it a revoked license of some sort? And so there are just different levels. It just depends on the severity of what occurred. Right. On the questionnaire, do they list if they're experiencing any of the three disorders like, or I forget what you said, it was suicidal ideation and cognitive distortion and depression. So do they mention, do they, um, do they fill that out or do you use so, different wording or how does that work? So like, Okay, so like when you're looking at the different variables, there are different assessments that you use to assess for that. So I used, I'll just give you an example. So in order for me to look at depression, I used, well, in order for me to have looked at depression and suicidal ideation, 
I use an assessment called the Patient Health Questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And, it, and for short, it's just called the PHQ-9 because it has nine items on there. Mm-hmm. And so it has questions that's... Um, that asks, well, I feel sad all of the time, or it's hard for me to get sleep, or um, I feel like harming myself or killing myself, or I don't feel like living. So it asks questions like that mm-hmm. um, from zero to three to like never experiencing that to always. And so you look at what their responses are. Now for me, there was certain types of um, coding that I had to do, which meant that I could not put their names on the assessments because that would um, jeopardize the integrity of the of the research study. Mm-hmm. And because I was the researcher and also providing the intervention, it was very important for me to um, keep it separated with like numbers. Okay. Um, to make sure that it wasn't um, just to keep it all together. Okay. I see. In, yeah. So even though maybe someone may have reported that they felt depressed, I I would not have been able to identify that. Okay. Yes, this person said they're depressed. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So then mm-hmm. you provided the intervention as well. I did. Okay. And how did you, how did you do that? So the participants, they received a total of six mindfulness groups. And so I met with them two times per week. And so some of the interventions or some of the mindfulness interventions would be doing breathing exercises, um, maybe listening to music um, while also engaging them in a guided imagery exercise. Um, some of the interventions were encouraging them to express their feelings and thoughts about themselves and others. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times it was a thing of just checking in for the moment to see, well, how are you doing today? How are you feeling today? Just to promote them being able to um, express themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it was really good to be able to actually experience my intervention as opposed to a lot of people that do research studies. They may use different um, techniques um, to get their participants to participate, like Survey Monkey, and you don't see the interaction, like you don't get to experience the interaction. But for me, it was really rewarding because I was a part of seeing change within mm-hmm. that system with mm-hmm. even within that short time, just being able to see their openness and their willingness to really talk mm-hmm. about their feelings and emotions without feeling judged mm-hmm. by others. Mm-hmm. So give me an example of some other changes that you noticed. I noticed that there were Again, people that may not have had a relationship while they were on their pods that they were able to like talk and communicate and just really share their stories. 
um, I was able to see that there were people in there that may have had um, previous aggressive behaviors prior to my coming out there to the um, facility, but just seeing the um, their attitudes and just their willingness to participate and just the the feedback that I received from some of the officers, you know, that, wow, well, what you're doing with this person, really, we could see the, the changes. We could see the difference just within that period of time. So just even verbal feedback. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so how long did the study last? It was three weeks. So I should say that, well, the goal of the study should have been three weeks, but I want to say that it was probably between four to four and a half weeks. And that was because sometimes there may have been times where the pods were locked down Mm -hmm. because of inappropriate behaviors um, and then I had to reschedule to come back another day or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were maybe times when um, there were other outside uh, companies that were doing some things with the participants. Um, like some of the participants um, have GED classes that they participate in. Mm-hmm. And so certain classes like that also kind of disrupt the mindfulness intervention. And so those types of classes definitely takes precedent over my research study. And so I was really open to just coming back just to make sure that the participants were able to receive their six mindfulness interventions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how many days a week did you go there? I went twice per week, two days per week. And you met with everybody together or did you meet with separate groups and separate so, pods? It's a, a great question. So, yes, they are in separate pods for a reason. So, yeah, I had eight different mindfulness groups each time that I went. Oh, wow. So and, you probably spent yeah. a good portion of the day there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. But there were some times where I may have um, met with maybe five or six pods and maybe two of the pods were locked down or maybe two of the pods were um, taken like a GD course or something of that nature. So there were sometimes. Uh, some space in there where I did not have all eight different groups mm-hmm. at the same at, or at, at the, the same day. Mm-hmm. And what was the yeah. type of feedback that they gave you, like the verbal feedback that they gave you? They said that it was just really great to be able to see someone like the term that they use is someone from the outside world world or the free world, as they put it, mm-hmm. to just be able to take their time out to come and be a part of their lives for that short period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, They really appreciated the fact that I created a non-judgmental environment that gave them like this opportunity or gave them permission to, to express themselves because mind you, if we go back culturally, 
culturally and uh, historically, a lot of people, a lot of men have been taught that it's not okay to cry. Mm -hmm. And so when they're in the prison system, you know, basically their thought is, well, you better not cry. Like you better not show not one sign of weakness. Like that's their mentality. Mm -hmm. And so just to be able to have that time and space with me during this intervention was like a safe place for them Mm -hmm. to share their emotions. And so in that moment, it wasn't about, um, you know, which gang this person belonged to or what side of town this person belonged to or what their religion was. Like everybody became one Mm -hmm. within that, within that time, which was really great. Um, and you mentioned that it was a kind of a a judgment free time or judgment free zone. Do they feel like other people who come in to the prison to offer programs that they are judgmental? I think that just in general, not just necessarily people that come into the prison system, that they feel that they're being judged. I just think that just overall people may have that thought that, well, hey, they're a felon, they're just in jail, and that they're just maybe a nobody. They are automatically you know, have that feeling or that thought. And sometimes it can, it could just be a cognitive distorted thought that they may feel that, well, a lot of people um, may feel that way about them mm-hmm. when in actuality, it, it may not really be the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So what was the, what was the outcome of your research? Yes. Yeah, so what, I was able to discover was that because of this mindfulness intervention, that indeed mindfulness is really great in de- in decreasing depression and suicidal ideations. It was also really effective in decreasing cognitive distortions, and it was also effective in promoting and boosting up their self-esteem, which was really great. And that's what I, I wanted to see that. Mm-hmm. I really did. And I, those results were just really amazing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what do you hope to do with this, with this research? I would love to. And so it was, it's interesting that you ask because prior to me finishing up with my research study, um, some of the staff said that they would love for that to be a, a real p- true part of their curriculum, the mindfulness. And so we actually looked at kind of like what that would look like overall for me to come out to um, volunteer uh, my services to provide that mindfulness intervention Mm-hmm. And so the conversation is still being discussed. We just don't know kind of like what that might look like. But my overall goal would be that it is important to make sure that people's needs are being addressed all around. Because when we look at the prison system, we see that there is a huge, huge um revolving door. Mm-hmm. So people go in and they get released, but then they come back and then they go in and they come back. It's just like a revolving door, like I said. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's because their their needs may not be, um, I'm not saying that everybody is like this, but mm-hmm. specifically 
people's needs may not be fully addressed in that people may not be given that time and space to get their feelings and emotions out. And when you don't give yourself permission to get your feelings and emotions out, then it it can look like anger. It can look like aggression when in actuality, it, it may be that that person is feeling some sadness or some shame or guilt. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that for me, um, it's really important to that conversation about mental illness. Mm-hmm. It's very important to have that conversation about how there are a lot of people with mental illness that are in the prison system. Um, as opposed to people that are placed in like state facilities. Mm -hmm. So there are more people statistically, there are more people in jails and in prison with mental illness than there are in those types of facilities. And so again, it's really important to, to be able to have that, that conversation Mm -hmm. on how do we start reforming um, the prison system. And and that's something that is actually um, happening now um, with the Davidson County Sheriff's Office. They are creating a four-unit facility which allows people with mental health problems to receive services as opposed to being transported Mm-hmm. to the prison and the jail system. Mm-hmm. So like when there is a mental health crisis, police officers are the first responders. And when they don't have resources as it relates to tending to these people who present with mental health issues, then the option is, you know, a lot of times they may go to jail and it could be because of trespassing, because they're homeless, or it could just be a variation of different things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in your, um, uh, is it a thesis or manuscripts? Oh, it's dissertation. Dissertation. Okay. Okay. Uh, I wrote a thesis, so I am trying to, okay. Dissertation. Um, so you mentioned the deinstitutional movement. Yes. Can you talk about that? What it is, when it happened? Sure. So that movement, um, it occurred somewhere in between the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And what it was, was it, the goal of that was to deinstitutionalize individuals who were in an inpatient facility by discharging them to the community so that they can live in homes or apartment settings Mm -hmm. as opposed to being institutionalized. And so as a direct result, some, there were a lot of consequences in that, in that, um, funding, a lot of places was no longer able to provide funding for people with mental illness. And so a lot of those people, that were institutionalized became homeless or were placed in the correctional facilities all over the United States. Um, there have been a lot of 
mental health state facilities that have closed across the entire United States. I don't have a, a direct number, an mm-hmm. exact number of what that is, but that's what happened. It was like they had the idea was really great um, because a lot of times people back in the days where, where they would call them a, an insane asylum were really shunned and just really mistreated so badly. And so the idea was great. It was just there was a lack of funding mm-hmm. for these for these individuals with mental illness. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as a as a solution? Um, you know, if you could um, just kind of sure. imagine what a perfect scenario would be, what what would that what that would that look like? So it would look like this. Um, a lot of times when people are being, let's say, released from jails and prisons, they don't have the resources that it takes in order to kind of keep them on a straight and narrow from the unhealthy habits that they used to engage in. And so I'm just really excited that in my current role with the Tennessee Department of Correction, I am a correctional counselor three, which means that I work with participants who have been in corrections, who have been um, in jail, who are either on probation and parole. And what I do is I work with them and provide mental health services in various groups. Um, I work with the Nashville Day Reporting Center in Madison, and it's a really amazing program for people who have been again, touched by the criminal justice system, but at least it gives them an opportunity to work on their feelings, work on their emotions, work on those substance use issues that they struggle with a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so it's an intensive outpatient program Mm -hmm. that's really structured. It has three different phases, but it's a really positive program that keeps people motivated. It keeps them um, having a purpose, if you will. And so I think that programs like that is really great and is really needed Mm -hmm. to help encourage healthier mental health and substance use outcomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what about for people who, um, like you said, have a mental health um, diagnosis and they are homeless, um, what are some ways to help and maybe in and out of the, the prison system, what are some ways to help those, those folks? Sure. It would be really great if some of the prison systems can adapt, um, an intervention that will assess for mental illness um, like a questionnaire, like a short questionnaire, like what I use, the PHQ-9, the patient health questionnaire, mm-hmm. uh, just to see kind of where they are. Now, there are um, different, what is it? There is a system I know that the department used when it relates to assessing for certain uh, mental health um, diagnoses that mm-hmm. the inmates have. Um, but there again, there still needs to be 
some interventions that are being utilized because a lot of times when people are going to jail and prison, um, the idea would be that, okay, we want this person to be rehabilitated. Well, they need the tools to be rehabilitated. Like, yes, they receive like anger management, which is really great. And, you know, they receive other types of classes, but it would be really great also um, for these institutions to be able to um, utilize various um, techniques like mindfulness, something that will get the inmates or participants to um, engage more in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. So then let's say someone works in the prison system somewhere else in the U S and they're, they want to implement a mindfulness program. Who would it be an employee at the, who works in the prison system or would it be an outside agency that they would ask or how, how would they get a mindfulness program started? That's a really great question. So yeah, a lot of the services that the inmates receive may be from volunteers. So there's a lot of churches that come out to volunteer. There are other programs and organizations that may come out to volunteer their time. Mm -hmm. Um, because I know that, you know, within the prison system, there are a lot of hardworking people within that system, but at the same time, um, you know, correctional officers are there to oversee, to make sure that there's a safe environment for everyone. So it would really be hard to say, okay, this correctional officer has to um, engage in a therapy session with someone because that would be outside of their, their job duties. And so a lot of times, again, they do pull on outside resources or they may even um, contract with certain companies mm -hmm. to provide other services. Mm -hmm. So yes. how does, how does faith play a role in your, your personal life and, and your professional life? Okay. And so faith, I just, I always, I, before I wake up in the morning, I always ask God, there's a particular prayer that I ask God, and that is, use me and let your will be done. And when I pray that prayer, I know that each and everything that I'm doing is intentional in that God is always using me. So I never have to like question myself like, oh, should I have done that? And not to say that I'm perfect. I mean, nobody is perfect, but it just feels so great mm -hmm. and so rewarding to know that when I go to the Nashville Day Reporting Center, for me, it's, it's not, it's not a job. It's, it's just my purpose, just being able to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it affects me in a positive way, both professionally and um, what was the other one? Per, um, personally. And personally, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I just have to, uh, so I just, 
I'm grateful to to just be a change agent in people's lives. And so I'm just, again, grateful to be able to not just talk about it, but just really be about it. So even us having this conversation, it, it's something that mm-hmm. it needs to be talked about. We need to be able to to talk about mental illness. We need to be able to talk about um, different things that affect people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's how yeah. this is. Yeah, I'm just, I'm still, I'm just here enjoying everything. Yeah. Mm. Is there, do you have a mentor or someone who um, has, has guided you or that you just, um, that Mm. you just look up to? (laughs) Sure. So I could say that there are several people that I look up to um, that have been, huge supporters of my entire educational journey. Um, and one is definitely my mother. Um, she's, she is my superhero. Mm-hmm. And I would say a former supervisor um, that I worked with for nearly 17 years. She's always been a great motivator in my life. And just when I say the the third person, I should say persons, meaning just people in my past life, people in my current life, like they, they hold that position as well. So I have a lot of people that I I look up to both previously and currently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything else that is important to share? Anything else you wanted to say? Yeah, I just think that we should all, just as human beings, we should just give one another an opportunity to, first of all, love ourselves and not be so judgmental of others. Um, I think that we also need to know that Everyone has a story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have this thought or this idea that I love to share when I'm in group. And that is, I give an example that we were all once a five-year-old child. Okay. And if you were to ask a five-year-old child what they want to be when they grow up, and especially if they grew up in a healthy environment, um, most often you might hear a response of, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer or I want to be an astronaut or a superhero. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see a five-year-old say, you know what? I want to be depressed and I want to go to prison for the rest of my life. Or I want to just go through a lot of hardships. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we know that life happens life happens. So there's things that we go through, things that we have lost. You know, when we look at losses, people have lost loved ones, people have lost relationships, people have lost um, jobs, and people have experienced various traumas. And it's like, if you don't allow yourself to deal with or process those things that occur, 
in your life, then it can manifest into some other unhealthy things. And so that's why I always just say, give yourself some grace and give yourself permission to to talk to someone. And for those people also, it's just important for us to not put judgment on other people because when we think about mental illness, mental illness does not discriminate. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter what your favorite ice cream is. It could happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to run in your family. There's always life circumstances that occur that could just change a person's life forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's the message that I would just, I would just want to say is that it would be so awesome if Everybody could just pause for a minute and just be still in the moment and just give themselves a little grace. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think I think that's a good place to to end sure. our conversation. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you too. I really appreciated our conversation and I'm just happy that you, you know, created this platform for me to be able to share. Well, thank you. And I'm so glad that, that we met a few months ago and, and, and this worked out. So, all right, well, I'm going to let you go and thank you so much for your time and tell your mother I said, hello, I think I met her. Yes, you did. I sure will. I will let her know that you said hello. I will. Okay. <laughs> all right. You take care. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye.